Please listen as Mike Sloan, our assistant pastor, brings the message that God has for us on this Lord's Day. You turn in your Bibles. Our sermon text this morning is Leviticus chapter 1. So the third, third book of the Bible. Leviticus, of course, is not one of the most uh, preached from texts, so I guess I owe you a bit of an explanation. Why would I, why would I do this to you? Uh, maybe you're visiting and uh, here you show up and you're, you're a bit blindsided. I'm going to make you read through uh, some laws about sacrifices. Well, there's many good reasons why we should give our attention to Leviticus. Uh, it is one of the most quoted Old Testament books by the New Testament writers. In fact, over and over again, the New Testament writers, uh, Paul and Peter and so forth, relate what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, the good news of the gospel and what Jesus did to Leviticus. They explain it in terms that come out of Leviticus. Not only that, they then explain how we are to live in the light of the grace shown to us. They relate that to Leviticus. So can we not, we really, according to the New Testament, can't understand uh, very deeply how to live out the Christian faith and respond appropriately to what Christ has done for us unless we understand what is going on in Leviticus. So that's that's one good reason. I do know it is hard to understand. Uh, it is very difficult. But hard work that we put in, hopefully in the next few minutes, will be rewarded because it gives to us some very central and profound truths. The heart of God himself, the heart of his covenant with us sinful people. So we're going to read Leviticus 1, and um, I'll give just a couple of notes of explanation as we read through it, uh, just so you have your bearings, because it is a very foreign type of passage to us, uh, very things that are not very uh, normal to our worship services, but these were to be a part of the worship of God's people uh, many years ago. So Leviticus chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Well, that's a preface to all the passages about sacrifices. Now he speaks specifically about an offering, a sacrifice called the burnt offering, And that's the one we're going to consider this morning. So this is about the burnt offering, starting in verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The next few verses repeat those same basic instructions, except 
If you could not afford to bring a bull, a, a, a male cow, then you could bring a goat, a male goat or a male uh, sheep. So this is repeating the same basic idea, except for someone who cannot afford to bring a bull. So verse 10, if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And now the next few verses, if you could not afford a ram or a male goat, you could also bring an offering of birds. So it's the same basic offering, except for someone who cannot afford those offerings. Verse, verse 14. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let's pray before we dive into this. Father, as we come to your word, uh, we ask that you would meet with us, that you would grant us uh, the Holy Spirit's illumining power, that we might understand, that we might grasp more deeply your heart, your love for your people, and what is our response to be uh, to this great love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every day at church for four years of our lives, uh, Emily and I heard the worship leader at Central Presbyterian Church in St. Louis when we were in seminary toward the beginning of the service. As he was leading the service, he would say these words to the congregation. He would say, good morning, Christ is risen. And then the congregation would reply, he is risen indeed. And then the worship leader would say, he died for us that we might live for him. Every single Sunday for four straight years, we heard that phrase, he died for us that we might live for him. And that is quite fitting because does that not encapsulate the heart of the Christian faith? Is that not what we need to hear every single day that Christ has died for us and that grace shown to us requires us to now live for him in all things? That is simply what the Bible is all about. And that is what the burnt offering at its heart is all about. What we just read, though it is foreign to us and, and it is difficult to grasp what exactly is happening. That is the heart. That is what God is reminding his people, that the holy God, the God Almighty, has accepted us and forgiven us. He loves us. And because of that grace, it is a not a cheap grace, but a costly grace, a grace that requires us to respond by offering our whole selves up to him. So it's a beautiful picture of the heart of all scripture, of the heart of the gospel and our response. 
Uh, and this is woven, of course, by God's great design. Uh, his uh, great intelligence wove this into the very fabric of their worship so the people would never forget. The burnt offerings were offered every single day and every single evening. They were offered at every major feast that the people of God had. They were offered on the Day of Atonement, uh, one of the most important feasts. They were offered at other times. Individuals could bring a burnt offering. So it was one of the most fundamental offerings, and God in his wisdom uh, packed it with this idea that we are loved and saved by his grace, and that calls for us to then offer to him something very costly, our own lives. So this morning, as we consider this offering, I just want to tell you what our approach will be. I just want to be very clear on what was actually happening in the, in the service of worship. So we just want to make sure we understand what would happen when a burnt offering was brought. And then we just want to mention three things that we are to learn from uh, this burnt offering. Uh, three things that God was communicating then as well as uh, today. So let's just think about uh, the drama of what was happening when a sacrifice was brought. Um, what actually happened? Because I think growing up, and maybe you have this experience, when you read something like this, the idea often I think that we get is you would bring your animal to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you would think, well, that means because it was a, it was a courtyard that was fenced in, and then there was a house in the middle where the Lord's presence was. I had in my mind that, well, that means you would go to the entrance of the courtyard where it was fenced, and you would give your animal over to the priest, and the priest would kind of take over from there. That is not at all how it would happen. Uh, as we just read, you would enter into the courtyard yourself. What would happen? Well, you would come beside the altar and you would put your hand onto the animal that you had brought and selected. And you were doing that. You would press your hand down on that animal because you were associating yourself with the animal, saying that uh, this animal is a substitute This sacrifice is a substitute for me, for my sin. You were associating yourself with the animal. Then what would happen next? Well, the animal would be killed. Who would kill the animal? Not the priest. You killed the animal. You came in before the presence of the holy God, a sinner, and you laid your hand upon that animal. And you said, this animal is going to die in my place. And then you had to kill the animal. You also prepared the animal. Did you notice that? You also prepared the animal to go on to the altar to be burnt completely to the Lord. Now, of course, the priest uh, did have duties and responsibilities. Their actions were the main symbolic ones. They would collect the blood and throw it on the altar. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And then they would actually take the animal onto the altar So it could be in the burnt offering, uniquely, the entire animal was consumed and burnt up. It was for the Lord. Other offerings, portions of it, were given to the priest uh, for their food. That's how the priests got food. But here, the whole offering is burnt up to the Lord. So just imagine what it would have been like to worship in that way. It was a full sensory experience. Uh, You came in before the presence of the Lord You were actively participating in this sacrifice. What would that have been like? It was a memorable picture 
He was a guide to the heart of the faith. As we mentioned, God was impressing upon his people certain key truths. So what were then the main truths that God was communicating to his people? We just want to mention three things this morning. The first is that the covenant, God's covenant, is for all. God's covenant is for all. Everyone was allowed to come and bring a burnt offering. That's why it seems tedious to us to read those instructions and have them repeated, you know, basically uh, two times after the initial instructions. But why did God do that? Well, it was on purpose because very few people could afford to bring a bull. Uh, that was a very costly offering. Um, that's why, in fact, it's uh, it is a male because that was the most costly animal. It wasn't have any, anything to do with superiority or anything like that. It was simply there were fewer males because the males as young animals were called out and there were fewer of them around. So it was a very costly offering to bring to the Lord. Well, if you couldn't afford a bull, what would you bring? Well, we read you bring a male goat or sheep. But that was even a lot for most people. But God wanted all to be able to come and worship him. So then he made provision for an offering of birds. So it seems repetitive to us, but God is going out of his way to make sure everyone knows they are able to approach him. He is a God who desires to be in covenant with anyone who will come to him through grace by faith. Now, this was actually a radical idea at the time. It was a very common view at the time among most nations that the Lord, especially uh, not the Lord, but their gods, the gods uh, that they believed in, were the ones who favored those who had power, those who had authority, those who had wealth and riches. Otherwise, how did they get the power and those, that wealth? So that was the common conception that the Lord was kind of tearing down among his people. He is a God who wants all to come to him. And your wealth or your power, when you stand before God, doesn't really matter because all come as sinners, all stand in need of God's grace. So that would have been uh, very much uh, communicated to the original people, and it should be to us as well. Whoever you are, if you're here this morning, God wants you to come to him by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This was an Old Testament emphasis. Many of you will think of verses in the New Testament where this is emphasized as well. Think about the Lord Jesus. When he was on earth, who did he seek out? Who did he spend time with? Well, often it was the people that no one would have expected him to spend time with. It was the outcast. It was the poor. It was those who were looked upon as untouchable, unclean. That's who Jesus went after, especially to spend time with, to welcome them, to call them to follow him. There's a very strong warning about this idea in the book of James. James, the brother of Jesus, uh, says this in James chapter 2, calling us not to show favoritism to anyone, but to follow the Lord's example. James 2, 1 says this, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, 
Have not then have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. So I think this is very instructive for us, certainly as it applies uh, as we come to worship when we have visitors No matter what they look like or or anything, we need to all seek to welcome them one in the same. But beyond that, in your lives, in our lives, are we willing to associate with people that Jesus associated with? To build relationships that maybe in our society it's not really expected. Uh, That would also stand out in our day, I believe, in many ways as it would have then. We are called to stand out and be different because God's covenant is for all people, all who would come by grace through faith in him. So that is the first thing we can learn, that God's covenant is for all. Uh, The second thing that we see here is that fundamentally, the covenant, God's covenant with his people is based upon grace. Um, And that is really the heart of the passage. As I mentioned, when you brought the animal into the uh, courtyard before the house of God, Uh, You would press your hand, lean on the animal, associating yourself with it, because uh, you were saying this animal is the substitute for me. My sin, it needs to be atoned for. It needs to be forgiven. And that's why the priest collected the blood and they threw it on the altar. The blood represented the very life of that animal. Because you were saying, I know my sin The wages of my sin is death before a holy God. And yet God has made provision for forgiveness through the blood of this sacrifice. So the blood was collected uh, and that represented the life of the animal. This is made clear in Leviticus 17. uh, If you're taking notes of verse 11, which says this for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So do you see what is being communicated? One life for another, the substitute. Imagine yourself again in that situation. You killing that lamb or goat or bull or offering those birds for your own very life. And as we read from Exodus, remember the context. They had just set up the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord had just descended upon this building the holy God, the all-glorious God, who cannot even look upon sin or tolerate wrong, has come down to dwell among a sinful people. How can that be except by grace, by the blood of a sacrifice? So through that, justice was served and the substitute was accepted on behalf of the sinner. The word atonement is, um, has a couple of meanings in the scriptures. In this case, Uh, That verse I read from Leviticus 17 makes it clear that what's going on here to make atonement means that a ransom is being offered. Uh, Now, I need you to just, uh, you know, suspend uh, your thinking when you hear that word ransom for a moment, because my mind goes straight to like movies and kidnapping situations. So just let's just consider this word for just a moment. Ransom. What does that mean? Well, in Scripture, 
um, it's very clear uh, what it means. It doesn't have much to do with kidnapping. Um, so what it actually meant was, imagine this situation. A, uh, a dreadful, a serious sin is committed. Let's just take, for example, let's say uh, there, there was a case of adultery. So a man commits adultery, and he is the guilty party, and he deserves, according to God's law, to be punished. In fact, to be put to death. Now, here's what can happen. A ransom can be made for his life. If the innocent husband, in mercy, says, I will permit a ransom to be paid, he has to consent. And then the guilty party must pay a very hefty price, usually money. And that is payment is made and his life is spared. And that's what a ransom was. Uh, that was a common example of a ransom at that time. Now, it's a costly payment. Now, to understand, when we come to the New Testament, when the Bible says Christ is our ransom, we have to understand that background. Because what happens when Jesus shows up and he is offered as a ransom is something more wonderful than we can imagine. Because think about this. We stand before God as what? Which party are we? We stand before him as the guilty party. No doubt about it. And God, the innocent party, not only consents to allow a ransom, he himself pays the ransom. And that was never done. So do you understand the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus? When we were helpless unable to pay the cost of our own sin, God not only consented to give that ransom, he sent Jesus not just to pay money, but to give his own life, the most costly offering imaginable. And that's why it pays to, sh- to know what Leviticus is talking about when we come to understanding the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. I have to confess, as someone who grew up in the church, the language of Christ died for us, it gets old. It gets, I've heard it since I was you know, a baby, right? But what does that mean? Well, Leviticus sheds tremendous light on that. And it causes us, hopefully, to wonder and be amazed at what God has done, at the amazing price that Jesus has paid for us. In John chapter 10, Jesus said these words, uh, verse 9. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Do you see what Jesus is saying? There is no obligation here whatsoever. But I willingly pay the ransom for my people. That is the grace of the Lord Jesus. And the result, as we see in our text in Leviticus 1, uh, verses 3 and 4, it's it's repeated twice. Um, He shall bring it, in the middle of verse 3, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. The sacrifice results in acceptance. Again, in verse 4, it says, uses that word. I don't know if you ever struggle with feeling whether God truly loves you or not. 
I know many of you do. I think maybe at, at some time all of us do. And it's at a time like that we need to remember what this text is communicating to us. The idea that Jesus came to be a ransom voluntarily. And when we're fearful and when we're anxious, we need to gently rebuke ourselves as having an unbelieving heart and say, what more could I ask of God to show than to offer his own son? What more proof could I need of his love? And so, of course, we all struggle with that. But remember, the whole action of the priest was there to assure you when you laid your hand upon the animal. We don't know, but most people think that the priest would say words that would encourage you, that the, the sacrifice would be accepted upon you, uh, for you, uh, that maybe there was even a hymn sung or a prayer was offered. But all of the this ex- extremely uh, full sensory experience was there to impress upon you without a doubt that God is gracious and he loves his people. He is here among you and he loves you. He has forgiven you. In fact, uh, not just Paul, as I mentioned, Peter as well, encourages believers from uh, this uh, from this very idea that Christ is that offering. In First Peter 1, he says this, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Why does he mention, again, the blood referring back to Leviticus, where the blood made atonement, like that of a lamb, again a reference to Leviticus, without blemish, again a reference to Leviticus 1. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. There is no blemish in him, and we are accepted through that sacrifice before God Almighty. So the covenant is for all, and this encourages us that the covenant is based upon God's Lavish grace for us. The final thing that we see here that this burnt offering is communicating to us is that the covenant includes response. God's covenant with us includes a response to this grace. Because that's exactly what was happening when you came in with your animal. It was your animal. It was a costly offering. You came and you offered it before the Lord. Now the Lord, you know, the blood was accepted by the Lord. That was God's grace uh, delighting in you, accepting you, forgiving you. But at the same time, it was you offering this one in your place. So it was an act of complete surrender, dedication, consecration, offering, in a sense, your own life, because that's what the animal represented. Offering it up to the Lord to be a pleasing aroma to him. And remember what happened with the burnt offering in particular. It was an offering that was consumed fully. None of it went to the priest. It was completely dedicated to God. It was for him. It was us giving to God everything. And that's what it represented. Now, God's people at this time had already been redeemed from Egypt. They had already been forgiven. God had already said, you are my children. 
That language is not new to the new, that's not from the New Testament. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. God had already redeemed them by His grace. But here in the worship service, as they came and were reminded of God's acceptance by grace, they were also reminded that His covenant includes this response. That not only do we receive His forgiveness, receive His love, but we are to offer ourselves wholly unto Him. Because God desires them to be transformed, to be changed, to be empowered by His grace to live for Him, to love others as He loved them. So in your own worship of God, when you come into this room, when you worship God, I hope we all come with this idea. Jesus, thank you for accepting me by your blood. Jesus, I am yours. And I offer my praise this morning to you. I hope we come more and more with that spirit in our own worship as we pray, as we sing, but not only here, in our entire lives. And that's where Paul, as we read in Ephesians 5, uses the burnt offering to teach us how we should live before our covenant God and in relationship with our covenant God who loves us and has saved us. If you would, please just turn back to Ephesians 5. And look at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How should we love? He says, As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's offering language. That's Sacrificial language, a fragrant offering. And that phrase is the same phrase that we read, a pleasing aroma. That's the same exact words in the original. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We don't go to Leviticus and read all this kind of foreign, you know, this is different. (laughs) I don't understand it. We don't read it and say, well, it's simply a means that Jesus has done this now for us. He's the ultimate sacrifice. Thank goodness we don't have to do that stuff anymore. I know at times that is our reaction. But what Paul and others in the New Testament will teach us is no. We have so much still to learn from these offerings. Because the offering in its very heart was again a response to grace. Of saying, God, you You've purchased me. You own my very life. I am yours. Take my life. I live it for you. And so the costly acts, the costly offerings that Paul encourages us to bring are acts of obedience, of putting away sin in our lives, to offer our very selves to the service of God Almighty. We can't add anything to the work of Christ, but there certainly is a due response to what he has done for us. And this is what Paul says is a pleasing aroma to God, even now. This is God's heart for people then. This is God's heart for people now, is that we are wholly given over to him. Now, as we mentioned uh, earlier in the service, I mentioned that woman who came before Jesus in Luke 7, and she was weeping, and she was so grateful for the forgiveness that Jesus had given to her. In her mind, She was willing to do anything for Jesus. In fact, Jesus comments about her great love. 
And because she grasped the grace of Jesus, she had great love that matched that great grace shown to her. And that's the heart of the burnt offering. It's a great love from God, received by a grateful people, and in response we love as he loved. This beautiful picture of life in God's covenant. We must hold those two things together. Um, those are two things that go together in the Christian life. If we simply focus on serving, you're going to get burnt out. Maybe even this morning you're sitting here and you're weary. If you are discouraged and you think that no one is even noticing what I'm going through and how I'm trying to serve the Lord, but I'm just struggling, be encouraged. Look to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And let that renew your energy, renew your strength in him. If you maybe aren't engaged in much service and much offering, maybe if you're honest, you're saying, I never come into worship with that attitude of, Lord, I am yours. Everything I have belongs to you. I would encourage you to consider You know, because often we have the concepts in our mind. What God has done for us, yes, he's forgiven my sins. But take another look at what Christ has truly done for us and how that leads us now to offer our whole selves. Because we can easily deceive ourselves and think we know Jesus. But if our lives are not changing, if we're not more and more offering our thoughts, our words, our actions, all of ourselves up to him, Maybe we've deceived ourselves and we don't truly know him. As we read earlier, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And this is the heart of Jesus for us, shown long ago in Leviticus. And it's his heart for us now. He offered himself a fragrant offering that we might do the same. Jesus loved us that we might love as he loved. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us for presuming upon your grace. Your grace shown to us was so costly. It is so uh, undeserved. And yet it is real. Jesus, help us to grasp it more. Help us to hold your grace in our response together. Help us to rejoice in the service you call us to, to give our very lives away. Because you've already done it. You've already paved the way. And you will help us. You will never leave us. So Jesus, we ask that you would encourage us this morning. That we would offer to you a very costly obedience, a very costly love. Because you have loved us tremendously. In your name we pray. Amen.